I didn't want to get into it and like become liable if he was trying to hack the contract or something because he had a pretty specific request. Knowing what the MevBot is doing in the Solidity contract is only half the battle. You actually have to know their strategy, know when it's being triggered, etc. to have that alpha. GMGM GM, everyone, my name is Dugachi, your host of Scraping Bits, and today I have the pleasure of speaking to John Becker, um, a wonderful friend of mine that has helped me get into my journey of formal ver- verification, automated analysis, so it's, uh, it's great to have you on. I just want to quickly touch on what you do and who you are. Nice, so my name is John Becker, I guess I'm an EVM ninja, pretty much. <laughs> I kind of just deal with low-level data and Ethereum data in general. Um, especially at my ex company, which just got acquired by Chainalysis. Uh, it was transposed data. A few years ago, I built, or last year, I built Heimdall, which is a really big EVM toolkit for decompiling contracts. So it like converts the raw bytecode, which is the only thing that's on chain really, to mm. like a readable Solidity format. That's pretty much the idea of it. How did you even get into building this uh, advanced EVM? toolkit specializing in in bytecode analysis so i like started out in crypto a while back and i wasn't really doing much with evm i was just looking into like uh little contracts like i made a proof of concept for recurring payments on ethereum like subscriptions Mm -hmm. and then i wasn't really happy with it to be honest it was kind of annoying to deal with like the developer environment at the time there was no foundry it was just hard hat and it was rough i had to like (laughs) i made my own ui that Oh, wow. basically let me develop contracts in a way that I thought was nicer. And then I started getting into a little bit of the security side of Ethereum and coding. And I was publishing some articles about, I guess it was OpenSea that really sparked it. Yeah, The OpenSea phishing exploit, mm-hmm. I think. And I was trying to look at their contract and determine what actually went down. Yeah, But it wasn't verified. And I ran it through like Panoramics, which is the other decompiler out there. Like mm-hmm. the other main one, other than Debob, and I had no idea what was happening. Um, I wrote <laughs> my article, and I was like, "Yeah, so I think this is a switch case." But it turns out that was just the function dispatcher, and I had no idea what I was talking about. After seeing how bad that decompiler was, and yeah. how like much it could be improved, that's really what sparked my journey into building it. So I started with a Python version, which was pretty bad. Mm-hmm. Um, Honestly, wasn't better than what I was trying to do. Yeah, but I eventually ported it over to Rust, and now it's I'm it's confident to say on it's it. one of the best ones. Yeah, yeah, there. definitely. Whenever someone like mentions basically a a, a disassembler slash you know decompiler, they always mention Heimdall. It's, it's kind of just grown into this you know go to kind of tool, um, and it, it's amazing. Yeah. Like it's it's got like seven hundred stars on GitHub right now, and it's Killing it, you keep on making content updates, uh, new patches with new features, um, and, and people just love it, right? And what, what, what's the goal, like the end goal of this, uh, of keep on basically why you keep on building this? I don't really have an end goal monetarily or anything. I really just want it to be a public good that's always open source. So it's a learning resource for people as well as just there for the community so that we can make Ethereum a little bit more transparent when it comes to contracts and stuff i think it's definitely important because a lot of contracts don't verify on etherscan and you don't really know what's happening right um and so 
people just you know put in their money blindly and it, it can be like a rug pool or a scam um and something like this uh, the more comprehensive it is the the more transparent things can get um and ultimately it, i guess it is kind of Etherscan's fault um, or the block explorer's fault, but tools like this basically help that and improve the space until things get fixed, right? Um, yeah, I think I think it's incredibly important, uh, and Etherscan does rely on this stuff as well in some ways. Um, yeah, they do. They they currently have a decompiler integrated, but it's Panoramics, which is very old, doesn't support. Um, the Chappella upgrade. So most contracts would probably fail. What was the kind of process of getting into all of this and building Heimdall from scratch, I guess? I used evm.codes a lot, like a lot, a lot. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I, was, I started with Python. And I started building just a VM, like the EVM in Python, mm-hmm. like in my own words, my own code. And I, building the EVM really helped me understand exactly what happens on the EVM. Mm-hmm. It's like a really very elegant kind of but simple system where every opcode just has a specific function it's really nice so through building that evm that's kind of how i learned it and then how did you get into like disassembly and you know branch analysis and all this kind of stuff like you had to learn you know all these different like theories and techniques i guess where did you start and how did you keep on progressing and getting into new new techniques and stuff like that yeah so i started with building the evm and then from there, I just kind of dove in. I, I built the disassembler first because it's the simplest thing. You're basically just iterating over the bytecode mm-hmm. and extracting it. It's not like x86 assembly or whatever where you mm-hmm. need to have seven different arguments for each thing. It's pretty much just either it's an opcode like add or it's a push yeah. with some bytes after it. Or now there's push zero, which has zero bytes after it. So building the disassembler was really easy. It was like, one of the first things I launched, I think V0.0 mm-hmm. or 0.1, maybe. All it had was a disassembler and some decoding modules for call data. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so after building the EVM, building the disassembler, I started to like just jump into the decompiler. I just dove in. I had no, no clue what I was <laughs> doing. Does. Yeah, I never went deep into compiler theory at all. Kind of just looking for patterns in the code. So I wrote a symbolic execution tool, uh, which would basically just execute all of the bytecode or try to execute every single possible path of the bytecode. Yeah. So whenever it reaches like a jump by opcode, it'll take the true and the false path, which does lead to some problems yeah. down the line with like dynamic jumps with yep, yep. This, you call code or like call dot load. Yeah. You like code copy and then you jump Yeah. and it's, I don't support that yet because I haven't figured it out. But yeah, it's hard, man. Even I'm doing that. I'm doing like the same thing, but my one's private for monetary reasons. (laughs) Um, But yeah, the the jump I problem, the dynamic problem is extremely difficult. I've been stuck on that for a while. (laughs) And like the deeper you go into all this stuff, it gets even more complex. And the problems just become even harder and you need even better solutions, but you need to do trade-offs as well and design these whole architectures. Building something like a decompilation tool is an extremely challenging task. And I don't think people really understand, you know, the the hurdle of really implementing everything and making something seem, well, return something readable (laughs) and and useful. It's 
extremely challenging. <laughs> um, yeah. It's very like non-deterministic, I guess. It it's not a straightforward task at all. You have you have to deal with things like compiler optimizations, bytecode obfuscation. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have to deal with people purposely and like deliberately trying to make your decompiler not work like yeah. the current contracts some of the devs told me that they purposely made it made sure that it didn't work on my tool oh wow <laughs> i think it was i forget who it was but they reached out to me and they were like yeah i made sure you couldn't just run it through heimdall and figure out the call data it's a very tough problem to solve and it's a pretty fun one to solve too but yeah yeah, yeah for sure it definitely keeps you occupied to say the least but that's so interesting that people were building. Was it? I'm, I'm assuming it was Huff. Yeah, it was in Huff, which uses I think call code copy and then dynamic jumps. They also use push to instead of push for sign or function signatures sometimes, which is not what I expected. So I have to yeah. solve for those edge cases. There's like so many edge cases to everything. It just yeah. it's impossible. Yeah, it takes a lot of work and a lot of. A lot of thinking, um, at least that's what it, it's, it's done to me. I, I have like basically a notepad <laughs> to deal with this stuff and it's half full already, um, just like problems and solutions. And then once you think of one solution, you reach another problem and you're like, oh, wow, that previous solution doesn't actually support this this new problem. You need like some more information relating to it or something around that. Yeah, my current problem is dealing with Abi encoded data and decoding the strings on the fly um mm. with rlp decode because if you if you like go decompile a contract right now and you look at let's say you just do wrapped ether yeah you look at the name and the symbol uh functions that heimdall spits out at you mm-hmm. they both have this like really gross recursive <laughs> huge if statement tree yeah but under the hood it's actually just an rlp encode or decode that's one of the edge cases i have to cover and that's on my roadmap it's one of the next things I want to do. So I've seen people just create basically jump eyes for like just spamming them. Just like spam just all these new control flows and then it just, oh, it's just horrible to read. But yeah, the, the heuristics you, you need to add just are essential, but it's, it's also uh, a lot of thinking, um, unfortunately. But yeah, how did you get into basically like branch analysis and, and all this other stuff and... You're basically creating a CFG, right? And Yeah. So that's what the symbolic execution stage does. My EVM that I wrote is actually really useful, like the fact that I wrote it myself. Yeah. Because every opcode that it executes has, it's like part of a struct called a VM trace in my mind mm-hmm. and in the code. Um, and that, that struct just holds like the input, output, other opcode, or not VM trace, it's called a wrapped op. It holds the input, the output, and all the operations that went into that opcode. Mm-hmm. So essentially the idea is at any point in time, you'll be able to say this call data load took 32 bytes from the call data and then it got sent to, I don't know, an M store. And then that got used later in a static call. Yeah. And basically that would that would get executed by my symbolic execution with the VM that I wrote. Mm-hmm. And then it can later be analyzed and converted to a Solidity-like format just mm-hmm. by analyzing the inputs and outputs and stuff. So yeah, the basically, the symbolic execution stage builds the CFG by creating these, I guess it's a tree of like wrapped opcodes, and you get every single path just branches off to more 
VM traces. And yeah, the it becomes really simple to convert things, but then you need to do a shit ton of post-processing. Yeah, a lot of, a lot of computational power needs to, to occur on a lot of for loops. <laughs> yeah, so like the... um. That's also one of the biggest challenges I've ran into with generating this control flow graph from right. bytecode um, is like the recursive slash loop problem. Because if the jump eye sends itself back up to a previous branch and then it'll like keep going. Yeah. <laughs> forever. You need like And there's not a really good way to avoid that because you can like you can say, yeah, okay, if we already covered this branch don't cover it again mm-hmm. but then you, you're like gonna lose out when the stack or the memory is different you're gonna be missing a ton of edge cases and branches so the way i've currently solved that is by checking if you, we've already covered that uh branch with the exact memory and call data or exact memory and stack and that solves most of the loop problems but (laughs) anything evm is never going to be perfect so Mm -hmm. it there's still always just loops in the wild that someone will report to me and they'll be like yeah i ran this contract and it's been running for seven days and i thought home bill was supposed to be first (laughs) yeah it it does a lot of checks to try to break out of loops Mm -hmm. yeah uh, recursive loops are definitely uh, a difficult task to uh, to basically solve it, it's it is quite difficult because if it's going you know it could loop forever right yeah. <laughs> and, and you need some like kind of heuristic to stop it but you need to also check like what's being affected within that loop right and if you're just going to skip it when it comes back to the same destination then you're skipping but basically you're not covering like the whole code you're skipping on a, a large chunk potentially, and it could be detrimental. It could be like a really crucial part of the code that you're skipping. So yeah, it's basically like building one of these. It's all just small little modules that you're kind of getting together. But I think the hardest part is getting the reconnaissance at the start, because if you don't have the right, I guess, reconnaissance in in terms of basically, okay, what what do I need to test? Where, where do I, what do I need to store with each kind of opcode and how do they all relate to each other? If you don't get that right, everything else kind of crumbles and you can't progress. At least that's what I've experienced. And I've even had to rewrite my entire thing from scratch in, in like the past two days because exactly that, like my, my reconnaissance wasn't really working too well. And I found a problem that required a lot more uh, information than what I exist, what I currently had. But yeah, and you're also determining whether something is like a view function or pure or you know, mutatable, um, I guess, how do you, how do you go, go about, uh, discovering that? Yeah. So there's heuristics for everything in the EVM, basically. Um, Heimdall aims to just be solidity specific because there's no standard for any of these languages, pretty much like solidity and Viper might share a few similarities, but not at all. So basically for view functions, you can just look at the opcodes that are executed in the tree. If you have functions that potentially modify state like external calls or storing in storage or mstore but basically anything that mutates right is is not is not a part of a 
a view function, right? Yeah, so that's like the simplest thing you can determine. So if it touches state at all, even with like if it's a state accessing instruction, mm-hmm. the function is no the function is no longer pure. And that just happens in the VM trace analysis, which is the step after symbolic execution right. in my decompiler, and it is analyzing all the traces that it has um, and like building the actual solidity code. So yep. it's just checking if any of the opcodes that it ran within that function are like non-pure non-pure opcodes. And it does the same for view. So pure and view, like the visibility of the function is pretty easy to determine. Mm-hmm. It gets harder when you're looking at the payable because payable sometimes has like a different dispatcher and they like they'll revert early if you send ether. That's a non-payable function. So basically, I just check for a jump eye that is reverting if there's any message.value sent. And if, if it's reverting because it has some value sent with that transaction, then we're going to assume it's a non-payable. Another thing I've kind of like ran into while, while doing my stuff, um, which, we, which we mentioned before, was like the dynamic inputs, right? Um, like what bits are being used where and how, how can a user basically influence the, the contract? Um, it's actually quite difficult to think of a solution for this, and I've been stuck on it for a while as well. Um, but I don't know if you've kind of like touched on it at all with like the, the call data inputs um, for like solidity and, and how it can be used, even like the message.value. So uh, you can still use message.value as even like a, a parameter input, right? If it's, yeah, if they um, use it correctly. So I know Mopbots do that a lot. They'll send like three-way or something, and it's some variable they have to use. Exactly, yeah. So have you thought about this at all, or like any kind of theories on how to solve this? <laughs> Theoretically, if you have the branches of all the execute possible executions, mm-hmm. you'll see where these variables are used as parameters. I guess you just have to look at, like, if you're copying call data into memory, Mm-hmm. then you have to keep track of where it got copied in like some storage somehow. Mm-hmm. And then when memory is accessed, you check where that memory came from. Mm-hmm. So if it was like call data from zero to 64 bytes, then you know that that's going to be used. Same thing for message.value. Like if it's being sent, like the entire message.value is being sent to some external call, mm-hmm. then it'll like show up there. And it's just kind of in the way that I built the tracing and the analyzing. It just kind of happens. Has anyone like ever approached you to basically reverse engineer a contract? Or yeah, has anyone basically approached you to reverse engineer a contract for them? Yeah, it was, um, I guess, la- either last year or two years ago, I got a DM on Twitter and some guy wanted to partner with me um, to decompile some MevBot. All right. I was like, it's, it's a fully open source tool you can install it and decompile it yourself and then i was like knowing what the mevbot is doing in the solidity contract is only half the battle you actually have to know their strategy know when it's being triggered etc to have that alpha yeah i I didn't i didn't want to get into it and like become liable if he was trying to hack the contract or something because he had a pretty specific request oh right got you how can i mutate it to do whatever i want how can i take the money out (laughs) That's one of the things I want to look at is like somehow determining what call data is required to reach a certain path in the CFG. Yeah. So like if we're going back to Curta and it's 
Like, you know, you want this function to return true. I, I don't know if it's even possible because there's like so many parameters and whatever, but if there was some way for it to like, oh, we jump here because this value is too low, you just increase it and continue until you have valid call data. Mm-hmm. That would be pretty cool. Yeah, I think that's a powerful tool. And that's actually something I'm working on. That's that's my latest problem. But it gets very complex when you basically use like a call.load and then one byte of that call.load for another call.load. And then that's where the my tracking system kind of gets like screwed up. Um, Because I haven't thought of like a a better way to kind of track this stuff. Do you have a specific contract that did that? Um, I just write all my contracts from scratch because I've been doing it for a fair while. And well, yeah, both writing in half and, you know, obfuscation kind of stuff. And I want to kind of cover everything. So whatever I think of that as a possibility, I try to cover. Um, Another interesting thing that I've seen is are they using like bits as their their variables. Um, So in one byte, there's eight bits, and then they mask basically a specific bit within the byte. Uh, (laughs) This is kind of sounds weird, but um, basically they use one bit in this byte as like the variable. And then basically one byte can contain eight different booleans, and the position of the bit is basically the value. So... I wanted to account for that, but I think it's also incredibly difficult to account for without symbolic execution uh, to see like what is what is like correct, what can pass and what what's failing, right? Um, yeah, I think you can do this kind of like bit tracker with solidity because you know there's no you know nested call data loads that like one is dependent on another. And it just becomes like this whole tracking mess. Um, But I think, yeah, Solidity doesn't do like dynamic inputs like that. So it's much easier to track bits. But when you get into custom bytecode, it's, oh my God, it's a nightmare. But I think that's where the majority of like alpha and interesting things occur. Uh, So that's why we kind of like took different paths. Like I went directly bytecode analysis and you went into like Solidity, right? Yeah. Yeah, I think that's interesting. I didn't know Ave literally broke apart bytes into each bit and used it as a boolean. That's wild. Yeah, um, I think this was when I was kind of learning about uh, bit masking and bit shifting. Um, I think a few of the people in the half Discord, shout out half Discord, were showing me like a repo of of that being used, and I also learned about like different kind of combinations of um, bitwise operations. So there's like this one called De Morgan, and it uses ors and nots basically to do the exact same thing as an and but it's just oh god yeah a, a lot more complicated so i was trying to account for that as well and i think one of the solutions i came up with was was checking for chained bitwise operations to see if something was being casted in some way um and obviously in solidity that's so much easier because it's kind of a standard to use like a shift left shift right or just a, a an end but if someone's trying to obfuscate their, their code, they're going to use something like Demorgan or something more advanced. I think I only handle for variable casting. Mm-hmm. Heimdall only handles shifts left, right. Then it uses and or bit masking as well. But it doesn't it doesn't care about if you're like obfuscating your contract, I, I can't I can't help you. <laughs> <laughs> 
yeah, it gets it gets way way too hard and it's super time consuming. But I don't know. I think that's also the fun in it, right? Like I want to occupy my mind and think of complex uh, solutions to complex problems. I think that's where I get joy in life, at least. Um, I'm, yeah, I get like so bored with basic solidity. I like my mind just shuts down. <laughs> Gotta um, be writing pure bytecode. Exactly. Like, yeah. I see guy, Kethic. I don't know how to pronounce his name. The guy who made the EVM in the EVM. Oh yeah, I, I saw that. <laughs> and it was like writing pure bytecode, but like from memory. Yeah. Oh man. It was just like, oh, 60, 80, 60, 40. <laughs> oh yeah. That, that's, that's as much as I know. The solidity dispatchers start thing. I think that's yeah, actually yeah. the free memory pointer. What are, I want to ask, like, what are some kind of common patterns you see in, in the solidity compiler or and what are like some patterns you you've like basically seen while um, decompiling. Yeah. So the, the largest pattern I've seen like that I have unsolved, I already mentioned was the RLP and the obby encoding stuff. That's pretty much one of them. What else? It does a lot of like the optimizer does a lot of weird stuff with when you're setting storage, sometimes it'll like bitwise or it with the current value that's in storage. Okay. And it's, kind of trippy i don't know why it does that <laughs> to be honest yet. yeah that's one of the patterns i also have to look at mm-hmm. but reading the solidity compiler itself would be quite useful but yeah for sure have you done that at all no <laughs> <laughs> doing decompilation I, tools without actually looking at the decompiler <laughs> i've glanced over it very briefly but i haven't looked into it in depth i think it's in c isn't it Oh God. Okay, so I probably never will look at it. Yeah, I, I remember yeah. I was thinking of it. I'm like, okay, what what's the easiest way to understand how the compiler works? And I was like, okay, let's read the compiler. But it was in C or C something like that. Um and I was like, Nope, not doing that. I'll take the hardware. We just gotta <laughs> record in Rust and then we're all good. Yeah, man. I I hope someone does do that. I think even doing what we do is is quite interesting, like uh in like a career pathway choice as well. Like we can basically go into um, compiler dev optimization. I think even like forward engineering as well, um, reverse engineering, and yeah, basically formal yeah. verification. Um, that's the way I've kind of gone, like the formal verification route. Yeah, there's like so many things that go into building a tool, kind of like this. Yeah, there's like so many paths forward you can take, pretty much. Mm. Uh, I'm taking my first course on compilers next semester oh interesting <laughs> it'll be fun yeah you've already kind of got a like a head start there um building this stuff but yeah should be, I, yeah. I knew absolutely nothing before i started this oh like, yeah same <laughs> journey. i started with just the evm looking up opcodes and evm.codes and implementing them and were you doing like just, a rust uh, i mean not rust were you doing like solidity before or it was like complete scratch um, I was doing Solidity. I wrote, I think one contract that I published was the Ethereum recurring payments because I think subscriptions are very important to any financial ecosystem and there's really no mm-hmm. solution for that on Ethereum yet. There was one that got proposed but never got past proposal. Mm-hmm. And I just wanted to get into Ethereum, get my work out there. So I spent probably a weekend writing this contract. That was like one of my first Ethereum contracts. 
Yeah, I think there's something like that um, called Sabler or something around those lines. Um, What's it recur- called? Sorry? What's it called? Like Sabler. Sabler. Basically, it's like reoccurring, but it's not 100% decentralized. Or maybe it is now. Um, nice. But it basically just uses like block.timestamp and then some math to calculate. Okay, total amount put in, how much time has passed, how much is yield, uh, something like that. Yeah, mine was extremely simple. It literally just wrapped ERC's transfer from mm-hmm. and you to prove to the contract and either party when the subscription was due would be able to pay it. It was, I think, fully decentralized. You just need a front end. I started coding one and then got distracted by Heimdall. Gave up <laughs> on it. Yeah. Building a UI for one of these tools is actually quite difficult as well. Have you done any AI, uh, not AI, uh, UI stuff at all? Um, for other things, yes, but not for Heimdall. Someone named ApeDev on Twitter made a UI for Heimdall. And it's very simple. You just, yeah, you put in, um, the contract address Mm -hmm. and it'll spit out whatever Heimdall has at the time. Um, I think I remember seeing that. Yeah. Yeah. It's called Mm decompile.tools. Um, yeah, it stays relatively up to date with the Heimdall version. Mm-hmm. So I have a release coming very soon, uh, hopefully within the next few days. And mm-hmm. I think he picks it up almost instantly whenever I release on GitHub. He he, set, he told me he set up a cron job or something to just look for updates. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Um, it makes it a lot easier to use the tool because if you're compiling Rust, it takes literally 10 minutes, 15 minutes to build the binary. And not many people want to trust a binary that you just download from GitHub. Oh, yeah, for so, sure. I understand all that. It could be like malware or, or some ransomware or something like that. Yeah. Speaking of ransomware and, and malware, have you ever like wondered about the world of uh, outside crypto in assembly um, and applying um, like this to, to like Web2 kind of stuff? Not really. I've looked into some like x86 assembly and like Ghidra and stuff i've tried reversing things before but i never really fell in love with it like i did with the evm i'm not really sure why i think evm is just really simple in my mind and now it makes sense to me but if i ever did want to port or like convert to like web 2 stuff i don't think it would be that much of a lift to get back into assembly and reverse engineering stuff Mm -hmm. yeah i think reverse engineering on uh on Web3 is more financially incentivized because I think a lot of teams are willing to pay or even just like basically black hats or anybody, yeah, basically anybody wanting to take money or analyze a a contract to exploit it. That's the only way you can really do it if if they don't have a verified contract. And... If you're trying to be like a white hat, that's also a way you're gonna have to do it. <laughs> um, yeah, you'd be surprised at how many like unverified exploitable. Actually, you probably wouldn't be surprised, but there's so many unverified exploitable contracts out there, mm-hmm. just through things like they use message.origin and stuff like that. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that's what uh, Grog Capital was doing when he was doing exploits on. I-, I think that's what he was doing. It might not have been him, to be honest, but. Um, there was like this time and period that really, that's actually the thing that, that got me uh, into all of this is seeing basically people attack each other 
in Mevland where where they were exploiting each other's binaries. <laughs> and yeah, just, that's, there was a lot of drama with that. Yeah, that was like the most interesting thing at the time for me. And I remember looking at that on Twitter. I'm like, wow, I want to get into this. And then I saw you already building it. And I was like, okay, and it was public good as well. So I started actually learning your one and then building my own alongside it. Um, and now we're both like still going. Um, I wonder if you're ever going to get into like formal verification. I think that would be a very fun kind of arc. Yeah, I think it would be very fun too. That's like, just correct me if I'm wrong, but formal verification is like just doing math to figure out if contracts do exactly what they say they're going to do, right? Yeah, I think it's along the lines of like, okay, is this doing what it's meant to do? I think I would eventually look into that. Mm-hmm. I tried making an audit module for Heimdall, um, mm-hmm. which would look for common vulnerabilities like reentrancy, just analyzing the CFG and stuff. Yeah. But that's not really formal verification. I think it'd be pretty interesting to look into. Yeah, yeah. I think the the closest, like the best tool out there right now is Brock's like pyrometer where it shows yeah. you like the bounds. Um, yeah, like the bounds would basically show show you ranges of how like the upper bound and lower bound is the maximum value that can be, that this, uh, this basically this value can be, a uh, variable, sorry. Um, and the lowest value, lowest and highest value this variable can be basically. Um, and then it just goes through the whole list, kind of like a intermediate representation um, using like A, B, C, you know, all that kind of stuff as like unique values and then going through the code like that, uh, which is pretty interesting. Um, and I think he's also got like taint analysis on the on the horizon. I'm not sure like how much they're working on that stuff, but I implemented taint analysis and it's, it's pretty good. <laughs> you, it's TLDR. It's basically you taint or opcode, um, quote unquote taint which is like dying something. Like let's say you die, put some dye in like a water stream and then the water stream has different pipes. You you get to see where, or maybe not like die, but let's say like a little boat and the boat goes down the water stream and you can see which way it goes down. And I guess the flow in this instance is basically the opcodes that are consuming that. And then you can see basically what that original tainted opcode is influencing down the line. Um, which is very useful if you want to see, okay, for ex- specifically what call data load is affecting what, right? And yeah. what M store at a specific value is affecting, you know, other stuff. And then through that, you can, that's how you kind of like identify what to, um, to target if you're anal- analyzing something. Um, well, at least that's the route I've taken. Uh, it could be different. It, it could be, it could be wrong be inefficient but i don't really know if there's anything else that sounds really familiar to what the wrapped opcodes do because you can pinpoint exactly which opcode instruction whatever it came or gave that value to the operation you're looking at mm-hmm. yeah symbolic um i don't i can't, I can't speak today <laughs> symbolic and oh, <laughs> Symbolic analysis is a uh, super interesting, but it, it is also like very computationally heavy. And when you have basically like for loops and for loops and if statements, it's basically like how many like it gets ins- exponentially more difficult and more lengthy to to compute. 
So let's say you have a for loop going going for 10 rounds and then for each loop you have a for loop nested inside for another 10 rounds. And then basically that's, you know, 10 times 10. That's that's basically your computation. Um, but yeah, it gets, it gets quite challenging. Uh, but I guess yeah. that's what symbolic analysis is. And I guess if you're doing like this bound analysis with the symbolic stuff, it, it lowers it quite a lot. But even then, let's say the maximum value for something is like a uint two five six, and then you've got a lot of stuff to iterate over, right? And you've got to find something that will pass a require statement or something like that. Um, yeah, it's 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 interesting. Um, but I guess what is next for for Heimdall on the on the horizon? Um, I have a roadmap laid out. Uh, right now, I'm working on a new module called Snapshot, and it's going to be very similar to decompile, but with more accurate data and only on the function level. So it's going to look for all the functions in the contract, determine their types, or determine their parameter types, and then it'll report back a list of all these functions, their signatures, selectors, mm-hmm. and then it'll also include things like access control. So like if you're not the person set in storage, zero, or if you're not the address in storage zero, like mm-hmm. you're not the admin, you can't call this, you can't call this function and it'll do gas, uh, snap or gas analysis as well to see like oh, what's the highest, lowest and average gas for that function. That's going to require an overhaul of my VM because my VM doesn't have dynamic gas at all. Mm. It just has static values. It doesn't care about warm or cool storage slots. But basically, a TLDR in the module is just going to dump a list of all the f- functions in the contract and then tell you a lot of useful information about each function. Mm-hmm. I think this would even be useful for like gas optimizations as well. So basically using Heimdall to see, okay, what, what, is, what is consuming the most gas and where can we change it? But I think... Like oh, on an upgrade level? Uh, but like I guess people really want gas optimizations at a solidity level, so I wonder if that would even be useful. Um, yeah, I know. I think it's Foundry probably has a way to measure gas as well. Yeah, yeah, but it, does. it would be cool if Heimdall had a way to measure the gas or the average gas that an opcode consumes for the entire like execution. I guess mm-hmm. like it runs the execution like a hundred thousand times, and it's like. On average, this opcode got called ninety thousand of the times, and you could probably remove it if you did this. And oh uh, yeah, yeah, sure. It kind of okay, yeah. So it, if it's not be being used cool. a lot, you can kind of like replace it with something else, right? Yeah, but then you get into problems with Etherscan never verifying contracts that aren't directly coded by like or directly compiled by Solidity. Yeah, yeah, that's that's a thing. So maybe alternatively, we should just work on the Solidity compiler and make it better. Just drop what yeah, ev- we could everything we're probably doing. improve it. We should just make a, a Rust a Rust version, right? <laughs> oh yeah, just compile Rust to EVM. Mm-hmm. I think um, Nascent just uh, picked up Plotchy as well, so that they should be getting quite some uh, new improvements. But I've spoken to quite a few people in the in the space and they say the formal verification scene is quite bad. So I think definitely we should, you should take this route and get into formal verification. I think personally it's uh, insanely interesting. Um, and I think the, the upside is like way higher than what you 
think it would be because it's such a it's such a niche right like yeah who who wants to learn this stuff <laughs> i think i can count like five people including like us who are actively building basically these kind of tools um and from like the half or maybe six people but yeah it's so it's so hard and it's such a missing market like there's nothing out there it's to a do. little community of evm hackers yeah yeah uh, tooling is such a necessary thing but it's lacking <laughs> i think even yeah. i spoke to harrison about this uh even like some kind of automated tool to find in solidity where you can improve so it's like hyper optimized so for example using instead of like using storage and then storing that stored value in a memory slot in a for loop and then using that memory slot you could like identify that and if it's using the same value you can push it outside of the for loop and so it can loop over just like a memory value instead or yeah it, it, just like that so you're not calling the storage each time so maybe like that would be pretty useful or have you thought yeah. about doing that for like Heimdall, especially since your one's catered for? Yeah, I think Heimdall is going to stay relatively close to bytecode. So if I were to like go into analyzing just direct Solidity files, it would probably end up being a new project just to keep the scope the same. But yeah, I, I do think there is more of a need for people like us doing EVM stuff because formal verification can like discover any exploit in any contract mm -hmm. it's like a very thorough and useful thing can even i think it can even find compiler bugs if i'm not mistaken yeah i think it can do kind of everything if you if you make it the right way right yeah but um, it requires a ton of work and there's oh, yeah. so many edge cases yeah you basically have to be an auditor and also know the compiler really well you basically need okay. to be like a, a jack of all trades but like yeah. a master at everything. Because <laughs> like without knowing the compiler, you won't be able to build the fundamental, I guess, like tool, uh, not tools, the fundamental like groundwork. And then without knowing auditing, you won't know what to actually look for and make heuristics for, right? So you've got to do that. And then you've also got to make it efficient so it doesn't take days to, <laughs> to uh, run. And it's also got to yeah. find the things as well. <laughs> yeah, like my tool specifically is built for um like critical findings only and unique findings uh so like how does it interact basically like how can i manipulate the bytecode in a way where i can select what input is being used where and what storage i can interact with um and influence and then also how can i basically take tokens from this or ether if it's even possible uh, I like my methodology was if if the only thing that's really necessary to basically exploit something is taking the money and mutating a state, then that's all you should look for, right? Like you don't need to look for mediums or lows or any of that stuff because it's not critical. And the only thing that black hats look for are the critical things, things that can steal money. <laughs> so yeah, that's that's kind of like what I'm doing, which should be quite interesting. If it fails, then well, I've just learned a lot of stuff and I can go work for someone else, like maybe NASA yeah. or something. Um, but if it's That's one of the fun things. You can always, like if your project doesn't take off or if no one uses it, it's still a learning opportunity. Like yeah. if no one used Heimdall, like the first Python version, mm -hmm. I would 
still be working for Transpose and now Chainalysis, I would still, I would have all this EVM knowledge, not to the extent I do now, but it would still have that knowledge. It'd be a great experience. And then I could move on with my life and probably find something else great to do. Mm, exactly. Yeah. It's such a great set of tools to learn. I think anybody yeah. should really, if they want to get a thorough understanding of basically like bytecode level and basically even like learn Huff, you, you can learn Huff through this. Because uh, I started without even knowing Huff. <laughs> um, I was just reading like EVM codes just like you and trying to implement like my own VM. Um, and to do that, you have to know how everything works, right? And then through that, you can learn other skills. Um, and for me, yeah. it was Huff. And then I kind of specialized in that for a couple of months. I'm just doing like contract work and then still doing this on the side. Uh, touching on that, how do you schedule your days? So you're working on Heimdall consistently um, while working your full-time job. Because if you don't work on something consistently, you kind of doesn't really take off, does it? Yeah, I think one of the main things to making a project take off is like being active and making sure you're engaging with people and like, mm-hmm putting yourself out there and getting them to actually use your product. Mm-hmm. Even if it's open source and it's just a project like that you do in your free time, I think it's important to do all that. But um, basically, I work for eight hours a day. Nice. <laughs> and then I, I come home, go on a walk, go to the gym. And then any time I have left, I just pretty much work on Heimdall or other projects. During the school year, it's pretty much the same, except uh, I have a school as well. Mm-hmm. So most of my work gets pushed to the weekends and most yeah. of my Heimdall work gets pushed to the weekends as well. Yeah. But it's a it's a fun balancing act between work, school, and Heimdall. Yeah, passion project. Yeah, I think it would definitely be interesting to see how it all plays out in the future. Maybe someone tries to like hire you for something like that or pay even like a VC might come along and just want to throw you money <laughs> um, to like build it out or like a sponsorship uh, endorsement kind of thing. But um, yeah, I think you're definitely on the right path and it's going to be exciting to see what's up next. We are getting close to the end now, but I would like to say thank you very much for coming on the podcast. I know this is your first time and hopefully it's been a good one. <laughs> thank you for having me. Yeah, of course. And I think it's very insightful as well. Maybe this has inspired someone to basically pursue the path you've taken and um basically dabble in in the harder on the in these hard problems and try and create these solutions because i know when i started i got inspired from the people i wanted to be like and then basically tried it myself and there wasn't a lot of content on those people talking so i think it is very useful and very valuable for people in general if when they listen to this well if they listen to this right (laughs) yeah i think if you're looking to get into evm stuff you should definitely do it because you're going to learn. It's going to be fun. There's a community of people who all just support each other. Mm-hmm. It's pretty great. Yeah, and I think don't be discouraged that it's just crypto. It relates to uh, Web2 as well, right? Like you can get it, even if it doesn't like turn out well, you can always go into like malware and like anal- analysis or you know something to do with that or working with compilers, anything. It, it's The world is really your oyster when you get into this kind of stuff uh, from at least from my point of view. Yeah, it's just like a niche of much bigger things. Yeah, it's amazing how much a niche can like expand into more niches. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, man, it's been such a pleasure and I, I, I hope you had a good time. Um, yeah, it was really fun. I'm glad.
uh yeah i hope the audience has an enjoyable time and uh until the next one